Thank you, Dan. Thank you, worship team. If you would turn to Revelation 22, the last chapter in the book, the last book of the Bible. So last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. I want to continue looking at verses 6 through 21. I want to take a little more time wrapping up the book of Revelation just to highlight some things that are in the book in general, as well as to highlight what we find in this last section. Obviously, all the Bible is meant to call us to trust God in the ways we need to and to love people in the ways he calls us to. And this is certainly the goal of these verses as well. All right, so read with me verses 6 through 21 of Revelation 22. It says, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of God. Many of us wear glasses and or contacts. I have contacts on. I've worn glasses since I was in the fifth grade. And so for a long time, I've recognized the need for corrected vision. And the reality of what we have in the book of Revelation is just that, corrected vision. God has given us in this book visions. 
that are meant to correct our faulty vision. Um, the book of Revelation is actually a letter. It actually begins like a letter and ends like a letter. But it's a letter filled with prophecy telling us about what is true here and now and what is going to happen in the future. And it's a prophecy that is apocalyptic, which means it's prophetic language in pictures. Uh, things that aren't necessarily literally true, but picture things that are literally true. And so what we have is, in this book, uh, pictures telling us what is tr- really true with regard to what we see. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, we see things, and yet we don't necessarily perceive everything we ought to perceive about what we see. Um, There is a crookedness at times, many times, to our perception of things. It's interesting, uh, I think it was when Emily was really young, she would point with her crooked finger and say, see, see. And I thought about that because that's how we are as sinners. We see things, but we're crooked in terms of what we see. And, And what I mean by that is this. Um, Scientists have begun to study magic. And what they've noticed about magic is that magic, the way magicians, you know, do things, is that they exploit weaknesses in the way our brain processes things. And so the reason why we think that they're doing something supernatural when they're not is because it appears that way. And so we have these realities of um, we see things and yet what we see is really not entirely accurate. If you look up there, you might wonder why I have that up there on the screen. But that is actually called the uh, Mueller, what is it, liar illusion. How many of you think the top line is shorter than the bottom line? When you first look at it, it appears that way. If you think about it, though, you think, well, that's just because of how the other lines are going. But actually, both lines are exactly the same length. But it initially will impress you with that the top line is actually shorter than the bottom line. And scientists, in looking at these kinds of things, have noted the fact that probably our sense that we use most often or and we think is most reliable our sight is not as reliable as we think it is and they would argue along these lines they would say intuitively we think of our eyes as simply capturing truthful images of the world but in reality our visual experience results from complex neuronal processes that make clever estimates about what the world is like. And as with all predictions, they are never 100% correct. This leads to errors, and it is these errors that magicians have mastered and exploit. Uh, They talk about some tricks and things and say, what this and other tricks show is that people often fail to see things even when they are looking straight at them. So don't be so sure to trust your vision in the future. You never know what's really happening. So it's interesting to think about what the scientists are talking about, how our visual sight uh, is still imperfect. As great as it is, it still 
uh, comes up short of always fully understanding what we see. And I think that's just a good illustration of that physical reality is a good illustration of the spiritual reality. That we think we see ourselves and God and life just like they are. We think we know ourselves. We think we know what God is like. We think we know what life is like. And we've got it all down pat. But the reality is our vision is way off. And it needs correcting because we're sinful and we're fallen. And what we have in this book, the book of Revelation, are pictures that are meant to correct our faulty vision so that we see what the world, what we, what God is truly like. And we celebrate on this weekend freedom. And Jesus said the true freedom that comes to us is through the truth. He said the truth is what will set us free. When we begin to see things from God's perspective, then we are truly set free. We truly have joy. We truly have peace. We're truly able to trust him and to love in the way we need to. Well, these last verses in Revelation 22 are what they call an epilogue. An epilogue literally means words attached to the end. They are the last words of a story or of a writing. And so what we have here is, in a sense, God's last words to us at the very end of the Bible. And these last words are meant to shape our last words. It's always been fascinating to me to read about people and what they say right before they die. Uh, For instance, you've got Anton LaVey, who was the founder of the Satanic Church. He was uh, known for saying, there is a beast in man that needs to be exercised, not exorcised. There's a beast in man that needs to be let out and enjoyed, not a beast that needs to be cast out. But when he was dying, his dying words were, Oh my, oh my, what have I done? There is something very wrong. There is something very wrong. In contrast to that, you've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged for being a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler at the end of World War II. And just before he died, he said, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. The end of my physical life in this fallen world, but really the beginning of real life. And so those last words of those two men are very different. But what we see at the end of Revelation 22 is meant to warn us about words like what were spoken by Anton LaVey and move us toward words like what were spoken by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so that's why we have these last words from our Lord. So if you look today, beginning in verse 12, we looked at the other verses at the beginning of the passage last week. But I want to focus on verses 12 through 16 for a few minutes uh, before we uh, worship again. In verse 12, it says, again, the Lord Jesus says, just like he said earlier in verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. So we have, again, a reminder that Jesus is coming back. He's going to finish the... um, his promises to us in light of what he did uh, on the cross and in light of his resurrection. He says, I'm coming quickly. And as I said last time, 
That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm coming in the next few years, but that I'm coming suddenly. And the Bible talks about the fact that the return of Christ is going to be like a thief in the night. A thief in the night just kind of shows up unexpectedly. And that's why so many times in the Gospels and in the epistles, you've got uh, the encouragement to be on the alert. Be on the alert. Be watching and waiting. Don't be caught off guard by the return of Christ. It's an encouragement for us to wait expectantly, expectantly, to, in a sense, live as if we're waiting for something. Uh, there's a movie uh, that our kids don't like to watch that is about um, a very faithful dog that gets into the habit of going to this train station and seeing its master go off on the train, then come back and they go home at the end of the day. Well, the, the master ends up dying while he's away, and so the dog comes to the train station every day and actually dies at the train station. And it's a picture, supposedly, of a, very, of a true story where this dog exhibits, exhibits an amazing faithfulness to wait and to keep on waiting. And it's a great picture of the kind of thing that is talked about in the Bible because the Bible talks a lot about waiting. And it actually tells us to take courage. Uh, let your heart be strong and wait on the Lord. It takes strength to wait and to wait well. And so when the Lord says, I'm coming, he's encouraging us to wait for his coming, to wait expectantly, to be alert, and to wait well in light of all that that means. We talk about uh, the blessed hope, and that's what uh, the church for thousands of years has said about the return of Christ is the blessed hope. Blessed means it's our happy hope. Why is it our happy hope? It's because... We know at the return of Christ, that's when we will truly experience the happiness that our heart longs for. Uh, You might remember um, Philip said to Jesus on the night he was betrayed, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. When Jesus comes back, we will see him and we will be like him and we will see God face to face and it will be enough for us. It will be more than enough for us. And so our Our blessed hope is the return of Christ when all that he's promised us will be fulfilled. And this hope of the return of Christ is meant to make us live differently, to wait well. And I mentioned last week, 1 Peter chapter 1, where it says, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means the return. When Jesus shows up and says, here I am, this is who I really am. He says, fix your hope on that. Don't fix your hope on your spouse or on your kids or on your job or on your health. Fix your hope on the revelation of Jesus and let that transform your life. Because he goes on to say, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. He's connecting our hope fixed on the return of Jesus as causing us to live our lives differently, to wait well, to seek to live trusting God and loving people like he calls us to. The same kind of thing is reflected in Titus chapter 2, when it says the grace of God has appeared, 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So that again, looking for Christ's return is something that the Bible commands us to do so that it transforms the way we trust God and love people, so, so that we love in greater, deeper, richer ways. Well, if we go on and we look at what else verse 12 says, it says, I am coming quickly, then it tells us a very important part of why he's coming back. It's not the only part, but it's a very, very significant significant part. He says, And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. My reward is with me. The word reward means uh, what you pay someone for work that is done. In other words, it's a just reward. It's a just payment for what is done. And it's according to what every man has done. And in the Bible, that word could be used in terms of a punishment or it could be used in terms of a positive reward, a blessing. It's kind of like, um, if you remember when you were really young, uh, you might remember being like six years old and depending on your circumstances, um, your mom might have said to you, your dad's coming home soon. Now, depending on what kind of day you had, that might be gloriously wonderful to hear. Especially if it's your birthday and you know he's going to come home bearing gifts. That's great. Dad's going to be here soon. But if you've been bad and your mom says something like, just wait till your dad gets home. That isn't good news. That's exactly the dynamic that's going on here. It really depends on where you stand in relationship to the person coming back. Whether or not the person coming back and the announcement of that news is good or not, or whether it's something to be afraid of and something to fear and something to not want to see happen. But if you look at what the New Testament says about Jesus coming back, it's interesting because in Acts chapter 17, it says he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So that Paul could preach and say, you know what? The meaning of the resurrection, at least in part, an important part, is that God has determined who's going to judge every other man. And that man is Jesus Christ. And we, he's told us who that man is going to be by raising him from the dead. We also see in Romans 2 where it says, Paul says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. It's interesting that Paul says part of the good news is that God is going to judge the secrets of men through Jesus. One of the most terrifying things for most of us is for people to find out our secrets. Yet the Bible says God is going to judge our secrets through Jesus. How do you escape that being a terrifying thing? Only if you understand um, what Amal read from the book of Genesis, that the implications of the sacrifice of Isaac, God did not 
tell Abraham to go through with it, but he put a ram in the place of Isaac to deliver him from that wrath, that death. When it says the Lord is our provider, the most important provision is a savior to rescue us from what our secrets deserve. It goes on uh, in other places in the Bible. Second Timothy, it says, it actually argues that the reason I'm doing this morning what I'm doing is because there's a judgment to come. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. So why do we have church? And why do men preach the word? Because Jesus Christ is going to judge every one of us one day. And we need to be ready for that. And the preaching of the word is meant to help us be ready by God's gracious work. And it says in 1 Peter 4, they will all give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In our society, we have a secular society in which we have basically argued as a society that God doesn't exist. And therefore, there is no objective right and wrong. And therefore, there is no life after death. And therefore, there is no accountability. So that, what's the need for restraint? Why shouldn't I just live the way I want to live? Why shouldn't I just do what I want to do? Why shouldn't I just define myself the way I want to define myself? Why can't I just make up my own standard of truth, my own standard of right and wrong? The reality is the Bible says there is a God, there is a standard of right and wrong, there is life after death, and there is accountability for our lives. The good news is Jesus came to bring mercy to those who deserve justice. That's the gospel. If, if that isn't true, then let's go home. We have no reason to be here if we don't need mercy and if Jesus isn't the way for it. But if we do need mercy to escape justice, and if Jesus really is who he said he is, we have good reason to be here. We have good reason to be listening to what the word of God says about it. One of the interesting things about the book of Revelation is that it moves toward the judgment, the final judgment. If you look at the um, seven seals and how it's talked about at the end of the discussion of the seven seals, it actually brings you to the point of the final judgment. If you look at how the seven trumpets are talked about, it actually brings you to the point of the final judgment. And obviously, if you read about the bowls, that is at the very end and certainly talks about the final judgment. So there's a sense in which it's portraying History is linear, meaning history is moving toward a point. And what is it moving toward? It's moving toward judgment. Well, not only judgment, there is heaven on earth after that, but it's definitely moving toward judgment. Another thing that's interesting is that many people see in the book of Revelation recapitulation, where there's a kind of a, a cycle through the book. You see things being repeated. And there are those who would say, if you look at the history of the world, you see things like what you find in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, you've got the people of God. They forget God. God sells them into slavery. They cry out for help. God gives them a deliverer. They, they worship God again, and then they forget God. And he sells them into slavery. He gives them a deliverer. 
he rescues them. They worship God for a while, then they go back into this cycle. It's a cycle of judgment. And there are many people who would say that the book of Revelation is about the judgment of Jerusalem. And I say, yeah, it is. Others would say it's about the, the judgment on Rome. And I say, yeah, it is. But ultimately, it's about the final judgment, that there are cycles of judgment that are reflected in the book, but it's ultimately about the judgment at the end of the world. And so when you look at Matthew 24, Jesus spends that chapter uh, talking about his return. Then Matthew 25, what is it about? There are three parables in Matthew 25, and it's all about what do you do and how should you feel and think and respond to the reality that Christ is coming back. And the first parable It's the parable of the ten virgins, which we talked about last week. And it's about the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. And it's a parable about being prepared. Make sure that you're living your life in light of the return of the bridegroom. The second parable is about the talents, where um, one man is given five talents, another two talents, another one talent, And the first two are faithful. And um, the man comes back and says, you've been faithful, so enter into the joy of your master. The last one buries his talent. And as a result, he doesn't enter into the joy of the master. He enters into outer darkness. And then the third parable is the parable of the sheep and the goats, where it says the son of man will return and he will sit on his glorious throne. And on one side will be the goats on his left hand, the sheep on the right hand. And it's about judgment. And the judgment is actually based on how they treated the people of God. Those who believe in Jesus. And it talks about if you served my brothers, my brethren, my people, then you served me, Jesus said. If you don't serve my people, then, or you didn't serve my people, then you didn't serve me. The interesting thing is, he says in that parable to those who are believers, who served other believers as an expression of their faith in Christ, enter into um, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, which obviously is a reference to God's sovereign grace in our lives, that he prepared a place for his people that he would save through the cross from the very beginning of time. But in answer to the the goats who did not have faith and did not love God's people, he says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Heaven prepared for you from the beginning of the world. Hell prepared actually for the devil and his angels. But it's also going to be the home of those who refuse mercy. The mercy that's offered in Jesus. And so we see the Lord Jesus emphasizing in light of his return, preparation for the end. Live your life in light of the end of the story. And so in verse 14, it says, Blessed 
or blessed are those who wash their robes that they that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. The idea of those who wash their robes is actually a present tense. Those who are washing their robes. There's a sense in which we as Christians are washed. There's a sense in which we need to be washing. There's a sense in which simply through the finished work of Jesus we are clean. There's another sense in which God says we are to pursue sanctification. And I think that's pictured in what Jesus tells Peter on the night that he was betrayed. He's washing the disciples' feet. And Peter says, you're not washing washing my feet. And Jesus says, you know, if you're going to be a part of what I'm doing, you have to let me wash your feet. And he goes on, and Peter says, well, didn't bathe all of me then. And Jesus says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And I, I think that's a picture of the fact that we are clean and accepted through simply what Jesus has done for us. And yet, if we are clean, we will have a heart to practically keep our feet clean as we walk through this world. Not to gain our acceptance, but to please our Father, who we've been reconciled to. And so the picture that we have in this passage is that those who are trusting Jesus, seeking to love as Jesus calls us to love, but relying on his finished work, their reward is paradise. It's to eat from the tree of life. Um, one of the things that we all suffer from is the idea of misplaced paradise. We think paradise can be experienced here and now. And that's why someone has said, and they lived happily ever after is the most is one of the most tragic sentences in literature. And they go on to talk about the fact that many people get married and think they will live happily ever after. And they find out that it's not everything that they thought it would be. And this person who's talking about this says, we live in a fallen world. We should not expect this to be paradise. We should not expect this to be heaven on earth. But that does not mean we should not expect heaven on earth. We should not expect it right here and now. We should expect it when Jesus comes back. And when we have that hope placed on him and his return... And we're free to love those imperfect spouses, those imperfect children, those imperfect parents, those imperfect co-workers, whoever it might be. The picture that we have in um, Jonathan Edwards' sermon on heaven, a world of love, is that heaven is a place where joy is full and ever-increasing. It's not boring. It's, It's everything we could ever want it to be and more. Moving on to verse 15, he says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. The picture there of a dog is not literal dogs. A dog was often used figuratively in terms of the way dogs were basically seen in that day and time. Dogs were not pets. They tended to be wild violent and unclean. So a dog was a reference to those who were impure, unclean, violent. A sorcerer would be someone in league with Satan. And then it talks about uh, those who love and practice lying. What kind of lies is are being talked about there? Well, and Judah talks about the fact that 
when Jesus returns, he will judge those who have spoken harshly of him. The reality is, naturally, as sinners, we lie about God, we lie about ourselves, we lie about life, we lie about other people. We look at this verse and we think, wow, I'm glad glad that's the ones that are going to be outside because that's not me. Well, the reality is, that is me. Because Jesus said, if you have sinful anger in your heart, you're a murderer. He said, if you lust after a woman, you're immoral. If you don't say, tell what's true about God, about yourself, and about others, you're a liar. That includes all of us when it says that, that outside are those who are like that. But who's inside? Those who've been forgiven of all these things. Those who have received mercy for all these things. It's not that they're different. It's that they've received mercy. They've taken of the water of life that Jesus offers us. And so uh, in the New Testament, in various places, it talks about those who are outside of the blessing that God offers. And like I said, it's very easy for us to look at verse 15 and think, wow, look at those people. Those are pretty bad people. And it's very easy even for us to look at our world and think, as a lot of people do, well, most people are really good people. That verse is telling us what we are really like. And the only reason why we don't act out on that more is because of the restraining common grace of God. There was something I uh, just heard about recently where someone who was a part of the music industry became a Christian and he started, started talking about a lot of what he had seen in the music, music industry in Hollywood. And he said, you'd be surprised at how many people are actually um, involved in the occult, involved in satanic worship of various kinds. This person said up to 70%. And he would argue that those who receive the greatest awards and are invited to the best parties are connected to those kinds of things. Now that sounds kind of surprising because we think, could that be really true? Could darkness be that um, pervasive? Well, it says at the end of 1 John, this world lies in the power of the evil one. And maybe we just don't realize it. There's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 8 where God kind of takes Ezekiel on a tour he says, Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they're doing here? And he kind of takes him behind closed doors. And he shows him the things that the people are doing. And he says, uh, do you see what they are doing? Yet you will see still greater abominations. Basically what he's doing is he's taking Ezekiel on a tour and saying, I'm about to judge. And I want you to know that their judgment is just. If you really see the abominations that are happening... The judgment is a just judgment. If you have your vision corrected, there will be no complaint that God is overreacting to what is happening in this world. And so we see that picture there. And it's interesting, and I'll wrap this up in light of time. In verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Why does he say for the churches? Um, 
at some point this fall, we're looking at actually having an event. Uh, some of the ladies are already beginning to plan an event where there's a Voice of the Martyrs um, live stream that we're going to watch later. But it's about members of the what we call the persecuted church or, or those who've been persecuted for Christ. The whole book of Revelation is a book that calls us to overcome. Overcome what? Overcome the temptation to walk away from Jesus. Overcome trying to escape persecution by embracing the worship of the beast. It's all about the fact that we live in a world that is hard, cruel, and satanic at its root. No matter how good it might appear, the world, the lost world in which we are all have been a part of, we still live in, is satanic at its root because it's anti-God and anti-Christ. And the temptation is to just fall in with the world because it seems the wise thing to do. And so the book of Revelation is calling us to trust this faithful and true word from God and believe that in the end, uh, those who follow Christ will truly be blessed. Let me close with this. It says in Hebrews thirteen twelve, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It says that outside the New Jerusalem are those who are described there, the immoral, the murderers, those who love and practice lying. And it's a picture of, I mean, hell in the New Testament is pictured as, it's talked about in terms of Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a, a place. It's a valley outside the city of Jerusalem that at one point was a place of child sacrifice. At another time, it became a garbage dump. But it was a place outside of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us he suffered outside the gate. For who? For people outside the gate. For people who are just like what we find in verse 15. Dogs and sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Which is a picture of what we are naturally apart from God's grace. But he suffered that we might be forgiven. And that's why the next section of this passage talks about, in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It's really important to understand that judgment is what love does when mercy is refused. Judgment is what love does when mercy is refused. Because the context of this judgment is the context of a Savior who says, I'm an able and willing Savior for anyone who will receive me. Anyone. You need not bear the eternal wrath of God. 
I offer you living water. I offer you the bread of life. I offer you me. And that's how the Bible ends. With that offer, which we'll look at more next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray for corrected vision. Because we don't see as well as we think we do. We don't see you as well as we think we do. We don't see ourselves as well as we think we do. We don't see life as well as we think we do. And we need you to correct our vision. We need you to show us the truth. We need you to set us free through the truth about yourself, about Jesus, about ourselves, about judgment, about heaven on earth and the life to come. Father, I pray here for those who have not yet taken the water of life, received the Lord Jesus, that they would very this very day confess their sin, agree with you, believe the good news that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for them, and entrust themselves to you, Lord Jesus. For those of us who've already done that, I pray that we would rejoice in the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that we would celebrate that again this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. We thank you, Father, for the good news of the gospel that cannot be truly appreciated apart from the dark, bad news of what our sin really deserves and what it really is. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.